Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of The Search. My name is Saud El Zaid. And today we'll be talking about that crack at 2 a.m. Um, hopefully we'll be able to go through um, some of the uh, pros and cons of each technique and why I prefer one over the other. Uh, I'd like to thank Ruben Strayer for allowing me uh, to use his uh, video which he'd recorded. It's simply awesome, by the way. Um, I encourage you to view it on Vimeo and on EM updates and um, to look at some of the discussion that came up as a result of the video on EM crit. Um, or MCRIT, I'm really not sure how to pronounce that, to be quite honest, especially given that English is my second language, but that's beside the point today. I'd also like to thank Faraz Zahabi. Um, I think that uh, his TriStar Gym channel is a great channel to learn how to teach any sort of physical sport, and I think of surgery and of trauma in general as a physical sport. And any other references that I've used have been uh, quoted or featured on the slides themselves. So, uh... Today we'll be talking about the different kits and methods, uh, and then I'll go through a play-by-play -play of uh, the video and what I think works uh, in that video and why I think it's quite an excellent video to use as a reference. And if you look at the um, uh, text spiel of the podcast itself, um, I'll include a link to another video I found that may be copyright protected, and therefore I can't feature, but I can reference. And lastly, I'll just touch on education preparation in terms of what to do to prepare for that emergency airway situation. Um, so in terms of steps towards the procedure, um, preparation I think is key, but more on that later. Um, next thing you should look at is identifying the problem early and trying to figure out what you're going to do for the patient very, very early on. Um, as I'd mentioned in a previous episode, predicting the airway isn't something that we're good at, especially not in the trauma bay. And the studies that have been conducted on references and scoring systems to be able to predict an airway simply take too long to do in an emergency situation. And that's the name of our game. So step one is identify your problem early. Step two is have your supraglottic device, LMA, bag mask ventilation, BiPAP, use whatever you feel comfortable with ready. And have somebody in control of it if you're going to start cutting skin. Step three, decide on what, if any, additional sedation may be needed. Sometimes you do need it, sometimes you don't. So once you've done that, you need to figure out what your options are. So um, if you look at the literature, there's uh, the uh, needle cricothyroidotomy, the Melker premade tube, the scalpel finger technique, and the scalpel uh, finger bougie technique or scalpel bougie technique. And I don't look at these as options. I look at these as premade kits because you can't train on an option that you don't have in your hospital. So the needle crack is a 14kg IV, 2cc syringe, and a high flow connector. A scalpel finger needle technique is a 14kg IV blade and a high flow connector. Similar to the needle crack, in my opinion, almost exactly the same with the same disadvantages. The Melker tube is a pre-made kit, uh, very similar to the blue rhino used for percutaneous trachs or the blue dolphin, uh, depending on where you live and what resources you have. And the scalpel finger or scalpel bougie technique is basically the scalpel, the bougie, and the tube. It's the cheapest of all of those. And... As I'll mention later, it's probably the most effective one to learn for an emergency situation, especially if you have a surgical background. It's nice and easy to do. My problem with the finger with the needle technique is the fact that for the most part, these needles get kinked. If they're not going to get kinked while you're putting them in, they're going to get kinked while they're on transport. 
And if you think that a garden needle is a good idea, or a better idea, then go check the price list on it, and you'll soon realize that it's way cheaper to just find an ET tube. The melter technique is great, but you have to have the set available, and you have to make sure that it doesn't expire. You also have to make sure that your staff are trained in it and know how to use it from the get-go. These things might seem simple, but just-in-time training doesn't work for a surgical airway, and so therefore weekly, monthly, quarterly, or annual training and certification might be something that you require, especially if you're the person who's responsible for a whole team as opposed to one person. The advantages of the scalpel bougie or scalpel finger bougie technique, depending on where you read it, is the fact that it's cheap, it's always available, and all you need is a size 5 tube, cuffed or uncuffed is your preference, a bougie, a scalpel, and a gauze. It's very, very easy to do compared to the other techniques, and it's especially easy to do if you expose yourself to uh, open tracheostomies and neck dissections regularly and come from a surgical background, which I realize most of us don't. Uh, at this point in 2017. The other reason why I'm a firm advocate for this technique is because it gets the tube in most of the time. Um, certain studies like this one have been done using the live tissue training models that has shown that the scalpel bougie technique gets the tube in 100% of the time with zero complication rates. It's the fastest way in and it takes barely 39 seconds in experienced hands compared to the uh, Melker technique which takes almost four times the amount of time and has a one in ten failure rate and what I consider the abysmal technique which is the uh, cannula or needle technique which might work but again number one you'll get bleeding number two you'll get dislodged number three even if you don't get dislodged you're gonna get kinked the only good reason to use the needle technique is if you plan to oxygenate the patient, ventilate the patient, and then subsequently switch to a different technique that may be superior. For example, a uh, retrograde um, guide wire intubation or a cut down to the actual trachea slash carcathyroid membrane and sticking the uh, tube in. Um, the other reason why I'm a firm advocate for the scalpel bougie or scalpel finger bougie technique is the fact that uh, it's been used in real life and it's the most uh, studied and reported on in real life. And this paper from Australasia talks about 24 successful cases of the scalpel finger tube technique without the use of the bougie. There are also other papers that advocate for the use of the bougie. I like to have it there and I like using it to flood that ET tube in. And I like using an ET tube as opposed to tracheostomy tube because it's smoother and more flexible, particularly a size 5. A size 5 gives you the option of being able to bronchoscope through it and at the same time it's uh, pliable enough and small enough to get into the, trache the uh, uh, tracheal region in the airway very easily. Um, the last reason and probably the most important if mildly less evidence based is the fact that uh, Scott Weingart says that it's the best technique. Um, I remember first hearing about it from him and I've used it more than a couple of times since and for me it's nice and safe, it's easy to do and it's easy to teach to other people and that's the key uh, thing. You have to be able to translate that to something that's done as a departmental standard during emergency situations otherwise you'll get called every single time and that's not su sustainable especially if you're the type of person who likes to attend conferences from time to time. So the steps towards the procedure. Number one, like I mentioned prior, and I can't say it enough times, decide early. Number two, like with any procedure in surgery, make sure they have good lighting, good positioning, adequate exposure, and your equipment is ready and tested before you need it. This applies to any procedure that you do. 
number three, or no, lastly, realize that this is not a one-person procedure or one-person technique. It's actually a four to five-person thing. You're going to need to buy bag mask or BiPAP somebody. Now, the concept of BiPAP in emergency airway isn't something that I have evidence for, but if you have a machine that can do the ambu bagging for you, and you have a, a limited number of people around you, it may be something to consider. And in the video featured, it is actually used um, uh, as part of the, the management of the patient's airway. Number two, decide on analgesia and drugs that you will use. And the reason why I don't separate the two is because you will delegate this to one person in your team. Number three, have a team leader assigned. So have somebody else assigned to running the code, quote unquote. Number four, ask for the instruments and confirm that they're there. Ask for the needle, ask for the crack, ask for the hook if you need it, ask for that equipment before you actually need it. And number five or the fifth person in the room is going to be the operator. So you can see with that list, you're going to need at least four, if not five people around you. It's a very important concept to realize because most of the time when I'm called to do these things, people tend to complain about the fact that I keep asking for more and more people. Um, the phrase that they use is that I keep loading the boat because they don't realize that you need four people for this to work out great and you need four people for this to run smoothly. In terms of lighting, my favorite resource for ED room procedures and emergency procedures is a nice headlamp that we use for camping usually. These vary between uh, $8 and 20 I want to say 25 to my god there's one for 70 bucks lord help me uh, to 25 bucks um, I initially picked one that wasn't waterproof and got burned by it uh, I recently bought one that that is it costs an extra couple of dollars but uh, you won't regret it believe me because there'll be lots of blood splashing around as you'll see in the video uh, these headlamps work great uh, they light up the area that you're looking at they're relatively cheap so if they break you won't lose it and um, they're useful for camping too so there you go uh, in terms of positioning if you look at the actual cricothyroid membrane it's a very tight area and it's surrounded by muscles and uh, while we're on the subject the nerves that you don't want to hit are so far away you shouldn't even worry about them when you're making your inc skin incision and your skin incision should be a nice vertical incision going from the um, hyoid bone all the way down uh, just below the uh, thyroid cartilage. Um, to maximize getting that right and to maximize the area in which you're going to put the ET tube and to get into that zone there and to thin out all that fat, the subcutaneous fat over it, especially if it's a difficult airway, and to thin out all those muscles, the ideal position would be in maximal neck extension. Yes, I know some of our patients have C-spines on board, but that's usually precautionary, and there's a whole debate to be had about using C-spines on logboards in a prophylactic manner. And as you can see from this x-ray I stole from uh, a Creative Commons website on medical imaging, extending the neck makes it easier for everything to happen. It's easier for you to intubate, it makes the area wider, it makes the bore of the actual airway bigger and reduces the tightening around the area, it's just the right position for you to do anything to do with the airway, including a tonsillectomy, I must say. And as you can see from uh, these images, neck extension also plays a significant role in moving the muscles out of the way and moving those strap muscles out of the way, and they will bleed. Most of the bleeding that you see during the video and that you see during an emergency airway does not come from a named vessel. It comes from the muscle tissue that you have to cut through to get into that right area.
So without further ado, I'd like to get to the play-by-play uh, -play of the video, and I'd like to thank um, Ruben Stryer for uh, giving me permission to use it. All right, so just a little bit about the uh, clinical case and the reasons for the cricothyroidotomy. Um, this patient originally came in with a background history of mandibular wiring that had been done approximately a week prior. He presented in uh, VFib uh, arrest, basically, cardiogenic shock, and had been uh, shocked a number of times. And so, therefore, the decision to intubate was done relatively early because you really can't intubate through a uh, jaw that's wired shut. Uh, from the get-go, some of the key points. Uh, patients position maximal extension with a pillow right under them. Um, the area has been prepped and um, a uh, BiPAP machine is used uh, to momentarily support uh, the patient's airway. Um, in my opinion, using a BiPAP machine for this indication is kind of like using a Reboa for an unstable upper GI bleed. It makes sense. It's the right thing to do, and like the parachute paradigm for jumping off of an airplane, there's limited amount of evidence, but I don't think that you'd be faulted for doing it. So as you can see, uh, the first thing that the operator does is extend the neck maximally, and, and the non-dominant hand, the thyroid cartilage is pushed up and into the patient. He subsequently palpates the area, and this is in order to decide where the incision is going to be. And your incision will extend from the uh, top of the thyroid cartilage all the way down to the suprasternal notch, or just above it. As you make your incision, you can see that uh, there's a pale layer of the uh, subdermis and dermis um, begin to come into view. Uh, this layer rarely bleeds, but the subcutaneous fat under it oozes a little bit. As you go through the subcutaneous fat and the muscles come into view, it becomes easier and easier to palpate. And as you can see, the operator is able to palpate the carcothyroid membrane. Cut through the muscles and then subsequently feels for the thyroid membrane. And makes that transverse incision. The incision is subsequently widened once you palpate the area and feel the rings. And don't be alarmed by the amount of blood. That's completely normal once you cut through the muscle. A key point here is the use of the gauze. Gauze is used uh, to uh, prevent the spreading of blood onto other participants in the room and uh, other people who are fulfilling a key role. Um, it's uh, also used to an extent to soak up some of the blood. The uh, bougie is subsequently fed 
over the patient, the operator's fingers, and um, that's a key point. You don't want to lose your track here, and that's one of the reasons why the bougie works. You can push it in as far as you can to get maximum resistance, and that tells you that you have a good length to be able to flood your uh, ET tube over. It also al allows you to uh, feel the rings uh, on the inside. And as you can see, the operator goes all the way down until he can feel maximum resistance. Once you know you're in the right place, you can flood your uh, ET tube, or in this case, a uh, five French Charlie tube, uh, over the uh, the bougie. And as you can see here, once the ET tube is in, it quote unquote tamponades the bleeding from the muscle, and the using is significantly less. And another key point here is the use of the uh, end tidal CO2 monitor. I think it's key because it communicates clearly to the rest of the room that the airway is now secure. Um, one of the things that isn't shown on this video is uh, how to secure the ET tube. Uh, I use uh, four point sutures, one on each quadrant of the uh, handles of the strap. And then I subsequently uh, use a cotton strap over it that usually comes with any um, uh, crack set or uh, endotracheal tube set. Uh, in this particular case, they used a tracheostomy or tracheotomy tube. Uh, my personal preference is towards a uh, five French uncuffed uh, regular uh, endotracheal tube. And the reason why is because they're a little bit more flexible and the airway is tight uh, infraglottically. Um, whoa. Uh, I've done this more than a couple of times and I have to say that was one of the smoothest surgical airways I've seen somebody do. Um, some of the key points, number one, it's always great when you can record these things. I never have time to, and I wish I did. Number two, it's even better when you have a survivor, and this patient was a survivor. I'm sure all of you would be happy to know. Number three, you could tell how silent that room was. Uh, I was the most talkative person on that video. Number four, there are no secrets to this. You can clearly see that the hands that were doing this were hands that were very well trained and took the time to learn how to do it. Now the question is, how do you do that? How do you get the training required? I was lucky enough to be involved in enough open tracheostomies and neck dissections and thyroidectomies. And in fact, to have had to have sit an exam where anatomy plays a key component. But how do you train other people to do it? And that's a topic for a completely different show that I'm hoping to give a little bit later on probably around about episode seven or eight. In my opinion, there is no one way to train somebody to do a surgical airway. And there's nothing that prepares you for the first time you have to do it. And the first time you have to do it, things won't go as well as you'd hope, but will go better than you might think. Um, at least that's the way that it was presented to me way back when. The fact of the matter is, it's very difficult to do. There's a significant amount of literature that says that uh, you do it by feel. 
There's a significant amount of literature that says that live tissue training is the only way to go. And there's some literature that says that uh, homemade models, such as the Cardiff model and others that have been reported, uh, are probably a good place to start. My opinion, it depends on what level of skill you are, what background you come from, and what you hope to achieve. First thing I'd like to say is, it's not a question of how much you know, it's a question of how long you've spent in training. And um, the initial part of training is getting used to the equipment, and I think that trainer models and mannequins tend to help with that. But from then onwards, it's a combination of cadaveric training, going to the right workshops, and getting used to the kits. And uh, that's my sort of advice at this point. Uh, I'll hopefully be able to give a dedicated talk on how to train somebody to do a surgical crack a little bit later on in this podcast. If uh, um, I get enough time to do it and if uh, it continues to grow. I'd like to thank you all for listening in and I'd like to thank um, Ruben Strayer for giving me the video. Uh, the way the video was annotated was very much similar to the way that uh, Firas Zahabi teaches on his YouTube channel, uh, TriStar Gym. Um, I encourage you all to go at least view one of those videos to see how it's done. Um, I've certainly gotten some good feedback where I've used it uh, for things like chest tubes and stuff like that. Um, let me know what you think. Uh, this is Saud Al-Zaid signing off. Uh, have a good day, everyone.